no-fly zone is an unambiguous combat operation. What we used to talk about in the no-fly zones was that we were, this was a policy tool that was being used to enforce United Nations resolutions. If you impose a no-fly zone, the no-fly zone has to be enforced. If you're going to enforce it, then there are only two outcomes. Either NATO fires the first shot, or the Russians fire the first shot. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And in this episode, we're talking no-fly zones, which have been the subject of considerable interest recently. Almost immediately after Russian forces invaded Ukraine, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky began calling for a no-fly zone to be implemented over his country to negate the effects of Russian air power. It's a call that NATO leaders have resisted. To discuss why and to offer a very unique perspective on what putting a no-fly zone in place actually entails, I'm joined by retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Mike Petruka. He is a veteran aviator with a great deal of combat experience, and importantly for the subject we're tackling in this episode, he has been involved in the enforcement of multiple no-fly zones. It's a conversation I really enjoyed on a very timely topic, and one I hope listeners will find interesting and informative. Before we get to it, as always, a couple notes. First, if you're not subscribed to the MWI podcast, please do so. You can find it on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, it would be terrific if you could give the podcast a rating or leave a review. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Mike Petruka. Mike, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for making some time to chat with me today. You're welcome. You are a retired U.S. Air Force aviator, and I asked you to come on the podcast today to talk about no-fly zones, a subject of uh, well considerable interest for, for pretty obvious reasons right now. Before we get into that, I wonder if you can give listeners just kind of a quick sense of your background in the Air Force. Sure. I was a career Air Force aviator, uh, 32 years of commissioned service, about 20 years of that being in the reserve component. Uh, I flew F4G wild weasels. In fact, I'm the last American to get a thousand hours in the mighty Phantom II. Transitioned to Strike Eagles in the good years when we bombed everybody we met. I had a uh, term as an irregular warfare officer, a couple combat deployments running around with a rifle, uh, and I rounded out my career flying uh, the AT6. I'm a backseater, so an electronic warfare officer uh, in those aircraft. And grand total, about 156 combat missions, but I might have lost track. <laughs> and, and, and especially pertinent to this discussion, you have taken part in the enforcement of no-fly zones. Can you give a quick overview of those experiences? Okay, so I flew in a handful of no-fly zones. So I flew Southern Watch both before in the early days when it was a no-fly zone and in the later days when it was also a no-drive zone. Uh, I flew in the northern Iraq no-fly zone under Provide Comfort 2 and also under Northern Watch. And then I flew in the no-fly zone over parts of the former Yugoslavia, which was deny flight in the mid-90s. So to, to sort of set the parameters for the conversation, I'd like to ask you to kind of talk briefly about you know, the, the high level overarching purpose of a no-fly zone. And you know, I recognize that e even the way I asked that question suggests a um, a degree of homogeneity uh, between all no-fly zones. Uh, so 
you know, I guess the, the natural following question to that is, does that homogeneity exist between these operations or does the implementation really uh, vary? Uh, and if so, how widely? Uh, so that's a yes and no question. So yes, they're all the same. And yes, they're all different. Uh, and let me explain that. So the purpose of a no-fly zone is to prevent an adversary and make no mistake about it. This is an adversarial relationship is to prevent an adversary from using their air power. And in Iraq and in Yugoslavia, the reason for preventing that was because the air power was being used to basically kill civilians. That was the purpose of it. And where the flavor differs is in the adversary's aircraft and what they have on the ground and how willing they are to test the no-fly zone. And that varies over time. So some days, months, it'll be months before you see anything. There can be a lot of boredom in a no-fly zone. And then literally the next day, you can have missiles flying and bombs exploding. Uh, a no-fly zone is an unambiguous combat operation. You know, as I was thinking through what I wanted to talk to you about today, knowing that you took part in, in, in several no-fly zones, um, this analogy sort of formed in my head in, in a very different context. We talk about uh, the distinction between peacekeeping missions and peacebuilding missions. Does that same sort of you know, dichotomy exist with no-fly zones? I guess more specifically, how different is it to plan and implement a no-fly zone in an area where the enforcing side already has air superiority or air supremacy versus a situation in which the airspace is is maybe more heavily contested? Uh, it's completely different. There's there's uh, different animals. So let me explain how the first no-fly zone came into being, and that'll explain kind of the planning and arrangement. So this was the first Gulf War, of course. We uh, pushed the Iraqis out of Kuwait and devastated their air force and devastated their air defenses, but didn't take the capital and did not change the regime. So immediately after the ceasefire, which was signed actually in the South, the Saddam Hussein regime was pushing against Kurdish populations in the North, an ethnic cleansing effort. And they were isolating the Kurds and they were pushing them out of uh, areas and hostilities had not actually stopped. So what's not widely known is that the light gray F-15Cs operating out of Insulik, Turkey, were downing uh, Iraqi jets over the north, north of the 36th parallel, after the ceasefire. And so air power, Iraqi air power, was still a threat up north. And Provide Comfort 1, which was a relief effort to supply Kurdish refugees who'd been pushed out of their homes. Because uh, remember, this was February and it's cold up there. Uh, Northern Iraq is mountainous and it's cold in the winter. So Provide Comfort needed to go on because there was a large airlift component. It needed to be unmolested. And that meant that the U.S. declared a no-fly zone and said, if you fly an airplane north of the 36th parallel, we will kill it. No ifs, ands, and buts. That methodology was then applied uh, 1992 in the southern no-fly zone. We kept it up in the northern no-fly zone until the second Gulf War. And then we used the tool again because the Serbs uh, were using air power 
against other ethnic groups in the former Yugoslavia, and we simply declared that we weren't going to allow them to fly. Now, in all those cases, we had such overwhelming air supremacy that it was literally years before either side could put up aircraft in a way to contest us. But those were still all combat missions. Every sortie you fly inside a no-fly zone is a combat mission. There are really, I think, two things here that I think are worth um, worth separating. There's the decision to implement a no-fly zone and then the actual enforcement of it. In these cases we're talking about from the 90s, you were, of course, involved in, in the latter, in the enforcement process. Uh, part of this equation. But you've also studied no-fly zones enough and written about them enough that you can speak, you know, with with some authority about the policy decision aspect of them. In these cases in northern Iraq, southern Iraq and the Balkans, was there essentially, you know, unanimity in policy circles that a we have the capacity to do this with acceptable levels of risk and b doing so will produce outsized effects for the costs that they entail. Well, right up to the outsized effects for the cost, uh, you were right on there. It's a relatively easy decision to make in that case. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's as much a political as a military implementation, right? So what we used to talk about in the no-fly zones that was that we were this was a policy tool that was being used to enforce United Nations resolutions, okay? starting with the invasion of Kuwait, and then there were various UN resolutions that followed on disarmament and on protection of the Kurds, etc. So we're looking at it as an enforcement tool, but in Iraq and in Serbia, it's a comparatively low-risk enforcement tool. It's not necessarily low cost. The northern no-fly zone, while we were there, that cost a million dollars a day, uh, whether we were flying in the country or not. And those were two wildly different no-fly zones. The southern no-fly zone was enforced 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, by uh, U.S. Air Force and Navy aircraft. Well, I should say coalition uh, aircraft, both naval and land-based. And in the north, we enforced it maybe 21 days a month, four hours only during daylight hours, uh, and not on weekends because the Iraqis did not fly on weekends and they did not fly at night. And the Turks were uh, did not really want us flying 24-7 combat air patrols out of their country uh, because they were themselves using air power against the Kurds uh, and they didn't want to mix things up. I'd like to get um, maybe even a little bit more granular, uh, if we can, about what enforcement of a no-fly zone actually looks like on the ground. Uh, I guess just to say what it looks like in the air. Um, you know, what are the moving pieces? How does coordination happen? Um, are there particular patterns that you fly? So that's a tactical question, and it, it again, it varies. So your foundational documents, the first one is you have the airspace control order which defines all your airspace, where the nose-fly zone is, where your reconnaissance assets are going to be, where the tankers are. Uh, and then you have what's called an air tasking order. And an air tasking order is issued generally for a theater uh, or for an operation every 24 hours. And it covers every tactical sortie that is going to be flown except fleet air defense, army rotary wing, and 
whatever the Marine Air Ground Task Force holds back for their own use. So there's a lot of moving parts and it's all planned and it all comes out in the air tasking order and you're given your task. But that gives you an area to patrol, okay? And a time to do it and when you're going to hit the tanker and how long you're going to be and who else is with you and what frequencies you're going to be on. Tactical execution is generally left up to the guys who fly it. So for example, in Iraq, northern Iraq, we might set up a pair of combat air patrols that are looking south from the northern no-fly zone towards Kiara West, which was the nearest active Iraqi air base and had Mirage F-1s on it. Uh, and we're generally looking you know, towards the south from our vantage point uh, because not only do we have to monitor for aircraft, we have to be in a position to protect our AWACS uh, if somebody comes north at, at very high speed. And the Iraqis had MiG-25s, which are very high-speed aircraft. AWACS is a is a sensor aircraft, for lack of a better term. Airborne warning and control. It's a radar aircraft. It's got a big radar on there, a bunch of uh, receivers for listening to other electronics, and literally a dozen folks in the back who are weapons controllers, each with their own radio and scope. And so their purpose is to monitor uh, the air picture and manage the air battle. Really, really an essential group of folks. For uh, any no-fly zone? For any air operation at all. Okay. Uh, that's one of those huge asymmetric advantages that the U.S. Air Force has. Uh, the Royal Air Force flies them. The French Air Force flies them. Uh, the Russians have one called A-50, a mainstay. Um, how good those are is yet to be seen. Uh, so other times, you might not be an air-to-air -air guy. Uh, you might be providing a defense suppression uh, mission, in which case you're probably, you might set up a combat air patrol, or you might do something what we referred to in northern Iraq as roving motorcycle gangs, in which case you are moving in a fashion to uh, basically skim around enemy air defenses and see if they're going to do anything. Weasels call it trolling for SAMs. So speaking of SAMs, uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, you know, and actually, I've, so I've got a couple more questions specifically about the no-fly zones that you were a part of, especially in Iraq. Uh, and then I, I'd like to transition to kind of applying some of what we know about no-fly zones from those previous, previous missions uh, to the current case of Ukraine. In Iraq, the no-fly zones obviously followed Iraqi forces' military defeat. Uh, that, of course, does not mean that every piece of equipment is entirely destroyed. Was there a meaningful SAM threat in the northern and southern no-fly zones? Yes, in the northern no-fly zone and later in the southern. So the, the Iraq was divided into four air defense sectors. And the fourth air defense sector, which is the northernmost sector, was the first to reconstitute after the first Gulf War. So they actually had air defenses. They were typically SA-2, SA-3, the occasional SA-6. All of those are Soviet systems. Uh, and SA-2 and SA-3 are Vietnam era. The SA-6 was the one of the weapon systems that gave the Israelis a hard time over the Sinai in 73. And also some Roland uh, systems, which were French-built uh, short-range air defense, plus a lot of guns. The Iraqis had a lot of guns, and some of them were big. Uh, so those air defenses rolled back probably by 1992, certainly no later than 1993, along with the radars to support them. And what were the rules of engagement uh, with respect to air defense threats? What were you allowed um, or expected to do if, you know, if you're flying and, and your sensors tell you that you're, you're in danger from a missile system on the ground? 
So another time, it depended on the rules of engagement at the time. So up until about 1994, when F4Gs were out there, wild weasels, uh, if somebody brought a radar on, we were moving into an attack position. I remember getting lit up over Saddam Dam, uh, which is a, uh, a man-made uh, reservoir up in northern Iraq by a system that I couldn't identify. And uh, I had Dennis Malfer in my front seat, great pilot. And I saw the thing come up on the scope. It, it was a very strong signal, good indication that we ourselves were being tracked. I said, um, he said, I got it. And we immediately went into a 4G slicing turn to put the nose on so I could get a missile off. And the radar went down and I never saw it again. And I mean, I never saw a radar with that parameters in the northern no-fly zone. So that was a very aggressive posture. Then after the, the F4Gs left, by 1996, the, the no-fly zone, it was very risk-averse. So we didn't necessarily even fly near where the air defenses were. We just kind of flew around them. And then in December of 1998, right after Desert Fox, uh, uh, Brigadier General Dave Zaytar Deptula uh, was our CFAC, and he was a great Combined Forces Air Component Commander. So he commanded the uh, air mission, and he changed the rules of engagement. He said, guys, if you are shot at, um, you are authorized to return fire uh, against the guys that shot at you. And later, he loosened it up in two steps. He first said, don't bother to ask me, just execute. And that became, if you're shot at by any element of the air defense network, you may reply with lethal force against any element of the air defense network, not necessarily the one that shot at you. You mentioned U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy aircraft, but also coalition aircraft. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the allies and partners that were involved in uh, the enforcement of the no-fly zones there? Uh, absolutely. So um, the provide comfort operation uh, and uh, included the French and the Royal Air Force. Southern Watch, as I recall, included the Royal Air Force. I can't remember if the Saudis ever played in it, but I don't remember uh, seeing them. Uh, so, and provide comfort. The reason it changed to Northern Watch was that the French stopped flying it. So that's why we changed the name. And then it was still a US-UK operation. In Italy, that was a NATO operation. And so, yes, NATO countries uh, flew it, and it was much more than the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy. From a ground forces perspective, when we're talking about allies and partners, uh, but especially NATO, a top priority is interoperability. Is that also the case with aviation? Um, you know, and, and are there challenges to enforcing a no-fly zone with a combined multinational force? So... NATO aircraft exercise together all the time. Okay, we have combined exercises. We have monthly events that are called cameos uh, in which a bunch of different nations will exercise uh, together and they might only fly one mission. My first operational check ride uh, in the F4G flying out of Spangdalem, Germany was a cameo sortie where we had a whole bunch of aircraft get together and, and I followed my task. Uh, when it came to Allied Force, NATO air forces were pretty good at working together. It's pretty seamless to the point where we even understand each other's national issues. So, for example, don't get between a Turkish uh, aircraft and the fuel tanker if they're running low, Okay, which is a good technique. 
The Portuguese, for example, flying F-16s are very limited. They're mostly going to perform an air-to-air role. But if a Portuguese pilot tells you he is going to be at a certain place and a certain time, that individual will be there at that place and that time, and you can bet money on it. Uh, they all have their additional, different national characteristics. The uh, Royal Air Force, very good. French Air Force, also very good. Um, and the Canadians. So those are your top four because those guys are not only the ones that you can trust to fly the missions, but they have the skill sets to plan and lead them. Uh, and then, uh, you know, other guys air to air, very well disciplined, the Dutch. So you have all your national characters and you all know it. And because you've exercised with each other, you may even have a flavor for units or even individuals in other NATO uh, squadrons. So talking about the coalition enforcement of no-fly zones is, um, I think, is a good segue uh, to sort of turn our uh, our attention, turn the conversation a little more directly to Ukraine, uh, given that the calls for a no-fly zone that we're hearing are, are calls for NATO to do it for the most part. What would actually be required to enforce a no-fly zone across the entirety of, you know, of what is a very large country? So you're probably going to need to divide the country into sectors, okay? And understand that you have two threat axes in Ukraine. You have from the east, uh, which is basically Russia. Uh, well, make it three because you've got the Crimea to the southeast, and then you have Belarus to the north. All of those areas can can provide not only an air threat, but surface-to-air missile systems. And that's, that's just to start. Uh, you might have other sectors depending on where Russian ground forces are. So, and the reason for this is because you've got a twofold challenge. The first challenge is where can the aircraft in a no-fly zone uh, that would enter Ukraine, the ones that you're trying to get not to fly, where are they going to come from? So that's that's two and a half, three attack axes. Uh, and then where are the surface-to-air missiles, uh, air defense batteries that are going to try and take you out so that you can't do that? Where are they? And you've got potentially... Uh, long-range systems in Belarus. You certainly have them in Russia. Uh, you definitely have them in the Crimea. And then you have whatever the Russian ground forces bring along as part of their organic army air defense, and they can bring along some very long-range systems. Uh, this is not, uh, we just bring along a bunch of things you carry on your shoulder. Uh, the Russian ground forces can bring along long-range, uh, very fast, uh, very lethal systems. In the case of Ukraine, as as you and uh, and others have pointed out, a no-fly zone means, in all likelihood, shooting at Russian aircraft. Does it also mean targeting Russian air defense systems on the ground in Ukraine in order to be effective? It might, um, if those SAM sites are employed, or if you feel you need to suppress them to cover your own operations. So typically in the northern no-fly zone, um, we would have more defense suppression assets uh, then we had pure air-to-air -air assets uh, available for protection. So just to make something you know clear that we're kind of skating around in Iraq, if you impose a no-fly zone, the no-fly zone has to be enforced, or it's just a bunch of words. If you're going to enforce it, then there are only two outcomes. Either NATO fires the first shot, or the Russians fire the first shot. And that's basically the first shot in a Russian... NATO conflict, because once that shot's fired, 
Uh, it's like using the F word in front of mom and Thanksgiving dinner. You cannot call it back. And so when we see people discussing the nature of a no-fly zone and whether or not we should impose one, it still comes back down to the reality. If a no-fly zone is going to be enforced, somebody is going to kill somebody else early. Taking it maybe um, kind of a logical step forward then, would it also be required to strike SAM sites and airfields uh, across the border in Belarus, for instance, or even Russia? Uh, if if you want to interdict the air power uh, and prevent it from being used, that is a logical step. If you are not going to at least strike air defenses across the border, then you shouldn't be putting your airplanes within range of those air defenses. And a modern SAM system can easily reach out and touch somebody at 100 nautical miles. So you could draw a bunch of lines where you don't get in their range uh, and fly aircraft in that zone, but then pretty much by definition, you're not flying over where the fighting is. So if you can enforce a no-fly zone only over the peaceful parts of the country, what good are you doing? Speaking you know, purely of the uh, military implementation, what are the biggest challenges that would have to be overcome? Um, so from an execution standpoint, uh, you obviously need to have the aircraft and you need to have the aircraft operating from uh, bases, uh, supplies. You need to set up a command and control, but NATO already has command and control structures in place. So they're well equipped to do that. Literally, NATO could kick off an air operation from one of their existing command structures tomorrow. Uh, so that problem is uh, is already solved. Uh, and the other problems are logistical. But then there's secondary level uh, issues. And that is, if you're operating at a base from Poland, what kind of air defense or missile defense do you need to provide for that base? Because make no mistake about it, if you are flying a combat mission out of a NATO base, that NATO base is legitimately subject to long-range missile attack. And I'm talking conventional, like an Iskander, uh, from the Russians. So then you have to lay in additional defenses. Uh, and you need to have make sure that your supply lines are in good shape and your stockpiles are there and your munitions are protected and your fuel stores are protected. And you have to have your surveillance assets like AWACS airborne. Um, and you have to have your tankers there. And uh, as weird as this may sound, you need to coordinate that pretty well because tankers are really, really important. Uh, you know, any kind of long range or sustained air operation, the tanker uh, guys are the unsung heroes. But Air Force, for example, uses one refueling system. Much of NATO and Navy aircraft use a different refueling system. Uh, so with the older tankers, uh, you have to kit them out one way or another. Newer tankers can do both. And when you say a different system, you mean the actual equipment on the aircraft, on both the tanker and the receiving aircraft? Correct. So the Air Force and uh, a couple other NATO nations um, use probe. Uh, well, sorry, the Air Force uses a boom, okay, where the boom comes out of the back of the tanker. There's a, there's a uh, person back there in the back of the tanker with a window looking out that controls it. And that, that we call the boomers, the boomer basically flies the boom into your receptacle and gives you gas. And you can move, that's, you can move a lot of gas in a very short period of time. The other system is called probe and drogue, where it looks like a badminton shuttle on a hose. And that's towed out behind the airplane. Helicopters use it too. 
Uh, and then you fly. You've got a probe that sticks out of your airplane. It's got a gas receptacle. You fly that into the basket. They hook up and you transfer fuel. That's a lot slower. So I think, you know, it's pretty clear from much of what you've said and, and, and certainly for any listeners who have read some of what you've written that you are opposed to a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Your reasons for that are, you know, I'm, I'm sure are complex and nuanced, but is it mostly a function of the risk of escalation or do you feel that maybe we, and we being NATO, are not militarily ready to actually do it at this point on short notice? Oh, no. I Militarily, I think we're pretty much ready to do it. And it's not even an escalation question. Uh, it's not risk of escalation. It is actual measurable escalation. It is the opening of hostilities between NATO and Russia. There's no ambiguity about that. There's no it might escalate. The imposition of a no-fly zone is that you are telling the other side that you have hostile intent and, and that you are prepared to perform a hostile act, which is an act of war, against that country's military assets. It is, if you do nothing else, the declaration of a no-fly zone is an escalation. Are there any conditions under which uh, a no-fly zone would make sense to you in Ukraine? You mentioned that there are essentially two outcomes uh, of a no-fly zone. Either we shoot at the Russians first or they shoot at us first. Um but, you know, what if there is a third potential option? What if this continues to grind on, you know, Russia's military campaign maybe looks to be on the verge of, of completely breaking down? Uh, and then, you know, this is combined with, you know, say the effects of sanctions and other measures to isolate Russia. Uh, you know, there's domestic pressures that Putin's regime might face. What if all of this sort of combined and we believe that there was a real chance that a no-fly zone could be the nail in the coffin, so to speak? Um, that Russia's position in Ukraine militarily is so untenable and 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 weak that there's a good chance that they just wouldn't test it, uh, that 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 Russian aircraft wouldn't fly. Granted, you know, I know this is a very hypothetical set of circumstances, but does a no-fly zone make sense to you in such a scenario? Well, so remember, it's not just aircraft. Okay, the first shot does not have to be fired by aircraft; it can be fired by ground-based air defense. And realize that Russian ground-based air defenses can reach over Ukraine without ever entering Ukrainian territory. Um, so there is no credible zero-risk or low-risk situation. Okay, not only that, but you're you're doing you're taking a military action in about the worst possible way. So what you're doing, what you would do from the standpoint of starting a no-fly zone, actually implementing it, is you're putting aircraft out there and you're saying to your air crew, yeah, we're not sure they'll shoot at you, but, uh, uh, you know, good luck with that. If you want to take the action where you are going to conduct air operations against the Russians, you do it right, which means on the first minutes, you are killing their air defenses you are hammering their airfields and you are removing their ability to control the air. Okay. So if you look at the continuum of stuff, since you're fighting the Russians anyway, and since you're destroying Russian assets and killing Russian servicemen anyway, you need to do it in a way that is going to allow your forces to have the best chance of success and not 
just hang out your own aviators because you think it's more politically palatable. It's not. It's a combat operation. You're going to kill people and you're going to lose people. Would a no-fly zone last summer have been effective, um, you know, specifically in deterring Russia from invading? Mm, an interesting question. Maybe, but what you would have done in that case is you would have extended a NATO defensive umbrella over Ukraine and said that if you take action against Ukraine, NATO will fight you. So you're giving the Ukraine the benefits of NATO membership without them being NATO members because you're basically saying we will use our military forces against the Russian to defend you, which is exactly what the Ukrainians want. The, one of the reasons why it's easy for the Ukrainians to call for a no-fly zone is because it's hugely beneficial for them. It brings in NATO into the fight on Ukraine's side, which they would love to have. So by saying we want a no-fly zone and trying to get that implemented, it's Ukraine's method of saying we want NATO military protection against the Russians, and that means you kill a bunch of Russians for us. So you get that defensive umbrella. Um, it's an escalation of the conflict to involve NATO on Ukraine's behalf. Yeah, and, and I recognize that it's, you know, it's a moot point in any case to ask that question in hindsight. There was clearly insufficient appetite for such a move uh, in NATO last summer. However, since then, uh, especially over the past few weeks, the first couple of weeks of this war, we have seen a dramatic change in terms of political support to Ukraine, military assistance uh, to Ukraine among a wide array of, uh, of countries, you know, not only inside NATO, but out of, outside of NATO as well. Given that change uh, within NATO, is there potentially scope for a no-fly zone in the future? Or is that really completely dependent on whether, you know, as you mentioned, on whether Ukraine is a NATO member? I think... You know, I think most people that have been uh, have been watching this conflict unfold have been surprised both at some of the problems that Russia has struggled with and has has really failed to overcome uh, in its campaign, uh, as well as the the strength and effectiveness of Ukraine's defense. You know, uh, of course, there is a very strong possibility that Russia's numerical and other advantages will eventually shift the balance in its favor. But if not, if that doesn't happen, and again, this is a highly speculative premise on which I ask this uh, this hypothetical question, but if Russian forces were forced to withdraw, uh, does a no-fly zone make sense at that point? Uh, so by definition, if the Russians pull out and stop hostilities, they're not conducting hostile actions against Ukraine. There's no need for a no-fly zone. So um, let me take two side issues here. One is to contrast the condition in the Baltic Republic. So for years now, NATO aircraft have been flying what we call air policing missions over the Baltic Republics, who are NATO members who do not have their own air force. And those are defensive uh, uh, missions. And of course, essentially, that is the peacetime no-fly zone, which is a, you know, called an ADIS, an air defense intercept zone, or just defending your airspace. So a peacetime no-fly zone is just defending your airspace in that case. Uh, you know, because there is no such thing as a peacetime no-fly zone. Um, the other aspect of that is I do not think that the that Russian victory is a foregone conclusion. Uh, I'm beginning to believe that the example here is the first Chechen war, which the Russians did not win. 
Uh, and I think that they are on a course to lose it for exactly the same reasons they lost the uh, first Chechen war, poor preparedness, poor command, poor tactics, poor tactical execution. Um, and so if we're looking forward to that, the only time that Ukraine should get air defense protection is if Ukraine were admitted into NATO. Otherwise, you are just extending a NATO membership defense umbrella over a country that is not a member of NATO. Okay. I think I want to kind of wrap up um, by zooming out and asking you a question, not specifically about no-fly zones, but a more general one about the ongoing fight uh, in the air domain in, in Ukraine. Based on your experience uh, as an aviator and somebody who is who's studied this stuff as well as 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 done it, have you been surprised by the, you know, the extent to which the airspace over Ukraine has been contested? Ah, yeah. So I am completely surprised with a whole bunch of other folks that the uh, Russians did not establish a high degree of air superiority. And I was watching video of a shoot down that happened, I think, March 7th uh, at night over Kiev. It was picked up by several cameras uh, uh, independently. That was a radar missile engagement. Okay. And, and a Ukrainian battery fired two radar missiles and they bagged uh, a jet fighter over Kiev. Um, so Ukrainian air defenses are still intact. Uh, they're still putting up a fight. Uh, the Russians are still executing very poorly, and I don't know the why of that, but the fact is at this stage, there's still an air power fight going on, and the Russians have not covered themselves in glory, despite what would have appeared on paper to be an overwhelming advantage. Well, I think we will, uh, we will leave it there. I want to thank you again for making some time uh, to record this conversation. It's been fascinating for me. I've certainly learned a lot, uh, and I trust that uh, it'll be interesting for listeners as well. So thank you. All right. Well, thanks for uh, the invitation. I really appreciate it, uh, and it was nice to chat about it, even though it's a horrific subject. Yes, yeah, it, it certainly is, but, uh, but thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.